This podcast discusses violence, drug use, and other adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. All right, welcome back to another episode of Breaking Pod. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, the one, the inimitable, the night owl, Josh Goldman. Josh, how are you? That's right. It makes me sound like a superhero. That's right. Except, uh, except instead of a superpower, I just have a super tiredness. All the, the night time. owl, Josh Goldman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, the you were, you, you texted me. I, I actually forgot to bring this up before we started recording, but you texted me and you said you wished you weren't a night owl because there's a stigma yeah. associated with them. So what is that stigma? Because yeah, I think I just, of night owls as like, I don't know, very active minds who just have trouble like calming down for... You well, know, thank you, Zach. Night, et cetera. Uh, I'll, re- I'll refer anybody to you. Yeah, yeah, please do. So tell me tell me what you think the stigma is. I just feel like, you know, the, the society in the United States and probably all over the world is that, you know, especially in our in our work culture, it's nine to five, you know, so it's it is like you need to be a morning. You need to be up in the morning. Business happens in the morning. You know, people are ready to go. And then by five o'clock, people are like, I'm shutting down or at least typically. Yeah. And so people who tend to work later at night. So my I would say my optimal time of work, like when I'm most creative, when I'm most, uh, you know, able to get things done is from the hours of like 10 to 1 a.m. And people are just not up then. So what I will say, this is a little behind the scenes tidbit, is the thing that saved me is I will do work for my actual job like late at night, but I will schedule my emails. We we use Google uh, email. So I will schedule them to go out early in the morning so that it makes it look like I'm working early in the morning. Brilliant. And that they don't know. That, that depends. If I'm really working hard on a project, I had to stay up till like four in the morning uh, a couple of weeks ago to finish a huge, huge project. And I made sure to send that email at four in the morning so people knew that I was like signing off for the night super late. But for the most part, if I'm just catching up on things, then I'll then I'll schedule the emails. I just feel like the stigma is that people tend to think that night owls are lazy. And there is some amount of like wanting to decompress and, you know, watch a TV show, read a book, something. But at the same time, I do get a lot of stuff finished at night. And I just think it's that that United States work culture nine to five that if you are operate any time outside of that, people are not pleased. Yeah, uh, I mean, I schedule all my emails to go out at two and three a.m. Actually, so people think I'm. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah, I mean, so I definitely see what you're talking about. It's it's probably fair to say that in you know my first job out of college was as a military officer, and like, you know, I remember like going to my first duty station, and I had to get up at four thirty every morning. Yeah, and then like be in the office by five fifteen, and that was just the culture, right? Like, just it's yeah. super early. But then on the flip side, like it's three thirty, and I'm clocking out to go home, you know? Sure. And I mean, that's still like over a ten hour day, so it wasn't it wasn't healthy. But um, in the military, I think that is maybe more accurate, right? Like, if you're not up with the sun, you're lazy <laughs> or whatever. But yeah, 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 yeah. I I, uh, I totally hear what you're saying. Uh, at the same time, though, I don't know. Like, I don't know if it's as widespread as you think it is. I think. me personally i don't have a stigma against uh night owls maybe because i sort of am one by nature like i had to fit the early morning mold when i was in the military but as you know i like to stay up late and i also do my best work like you know late at night so yeah um yeah maybe it's just my maybe it's just my inner circle that's that's (laughs) the people i'm closest with they're like yeah you should probably go to sleep earlier (laughs) get up earlier well i think there's an argument like if everyone else in your life is up earlier it's kind of hard to have your 
schedule yeah, totally out of alignment. You know, it's easy to be a night owl as a young single person, a lot harder to be a night owl with kids sure. because those kids get up early and then you can't get the sleep you need. So I, right. Exactly. You know, like I go to sleep earlier than I want to almost every night yeah. because I know that I'm going to be up with kids, you know? Right. And you want to be present for them. Right. So that, that totally makes sense. And you know, I like most of my work colleagues are on the East coast. I'm on mountain time. So I'm ar- already at a disadvantage there as well. So like, sure. I need to try to be, you know, up and having my working hours at least like by mid-morning their time, you know? Yeah, 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 definitely. So if I'm starting my workday at 10, like their workday is half over, you know, they're at noon already, so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the, the, the biggest problem is that my parents are extreme morning people. Like to the, they get up at like, probably not anymore because they're, my dad's working from home and my mom has just finished working, but they would, when they were in a normal non-pandemic world, they would get up at 345 in the morning. That's disgusting. To... <laughs> to what work is going out, on to work out to i mean just and then they like to just sit and read the paper in the morning so when I'm you like, were growing up would you like high five them as you were going to bed and they were waking up <laughs> yeah they got more extreme like after i left okay after i left you know for for college but like i just don't understand the getting up at 3 45 like yes i can see you want to you want to get a workout in in the morning that's fine do you really need to sit and and read the paper yeah like to me that's a that's a skip thing you five know, five is like, the earliest I will voluntarily do. And yeah. when I say voluntarily, it'll be like, okay, I have a lot of work to do tomorrow and I need right. to get a, you know, a workout in before 7 a.m. Sure. Or if you, you're going somewhere, you have like uh, another commitment to, you know, sometimes there's a, there's early morning, uh, you know, whatever. And you, you kind of have to commit to that stuff. But otherwise, you know, don't don't find me out of bed before seven in the morning most of the time. Yeah, I biked up and down Mount Albert earlier this summer and had to get up at 2.15 to do that. And it was... Yeah, I would have just stayed up. It was, it was horrible. It was so yeah. bad. <laughs> do not recommend. Anyway, yeah. we've talked enough about this, Josh. Let's talk about today's episode, season five, episode five, Dead Freight. Here is the two-minute summary as we just we just dive right in here, Josh. From Wikipedia, after Walter bugs Hank's new office and Mike learns he was wrong about Lydia placing the tracking device, the team works through several ideas to obtain methylamine from another source. They decide on a train heist with Todd assisting in the operation. The heist goes almost as smoothly as planned, but Todd notices a young boy stopping by on his dirt bike and witnessing the operation. He immediately shoots and kills the boy, much to Walter and Jesse's horror. The end. What grade do you give this summary, Josh? Well, first, I think we might need to rename our two-minute summary to like 45-second summary. These are getting like shorter. I, it's true. I feel like everyone in season five so far has been pretty short. Yeah. So I appreciate that. One-minute um, summary. This, this definitely hits some major points. It doesn't hit every every major point. I mean, there's this whole plot with, you know, like Lydia. That's She's much more involved in this than this summary might make you think. Um, and they also sort of just gloss over the heist, which is probably the the major climactic moment of the entire episode. Now, I will say that before I watched this episode, if you would have if you were to have asked me what how much time of the 45 minute runtime is spent on the train heist, I probably would have said like 30 minutes, like yeah. the actual heist. When I rewatched it, I watched it in two parts. So I watched like the first 30 minutes and the last 15 minutes. And when I paused it after 30 minutes, it was hadn't even happened yet. Yep. So I didn't realize that it was actually not quite as much as I it's still fun. And yeah. I'm sure we'll talk about it here. It's probably like um, a 12, but, 12 minute scene. I haven't timed yeah, it. But it it's yeah. not long. Yeah. A lot of it is the build up to that. So, um, you know, this this summary is OK, but it just doesn't give enough detail even for a summary. So I'll give it a C minus. 
How about you? Yeah, I'm going to go D. I mean, uh, so I think like it shortchanges the Lydia thing, which is a major part of the storyline that shouldn't be shortchanged. It also, I think, just wrongly describes the climactic scene because it's not just like Todd noticing a young boy. It's this young boy like riding up to them, watching what they were doing. He, I mean, as they admit in the next episode, he probably didn't know what he was seeing, et cetera, but they're all there watching this boy. It's not just like Todd notices him and he doesn't immediately take out his gun and shoot him. There's like this kind of pregnant moment of probably 30 seconds. I mean, at least it feels like 30 seconds as you're watching it and you're like, what's going to happen? What are they going to do, et cetera? And then it builds up to that, that climactic mo- moment in which Todd does shoot him. So yeah, D, it doesn't do it for me. They, they needed to take a full two minutes on this one, Josh, and they only spent like 30 seconds, yeah. so... Yeah, I agree. Well, let's do some trivia and bloopers here. Um, Although I'm actually not sure if I have uh, bloopers for this episode, but I do have some trivia. So a couple things. One, that tarantula is something that Todd ends up taking home after the boy dies. Now, we don't see him do that until next episode, but he does. He takes the the tarantula home. If you watch El Camino, Breaking Bad, which you and I did a uh, deep dive about last year, Josh, you'll see that that tarantula shows up in Todd's apartment. Now it uh you know is not the actual tarantula because that actual tarantula has since passed on etc. Uh but it is a tarantula that is in uh in Todd's jar and it's supposed to be the same tarantula that is in this show. So that's kind of a fun um a fun piece of continuity between El Camino and the show here. Um let's see. So I also this is from IMDb. I did not know this, but uh, I thought it was interesting. So we see that spider, and the spider appears in the very beginning, and the spider appears in the very end. So in the very beginning, the kid picks up the spider from the desert, puts it in his jacket, drives away. In the end, the kid is shot, he falls, and the spider, or the jar with the spider in it, tumbles out of his uh, out of his shirt. And this is apparently a Shakespearean reference, actually. And so let me read this from IMDb. Uh, the camera lingers on the bottle containing a captive spider dropped by the murdered boy. The image of a spider in a bottle is metaphorically used by Queen Margaret in Shakespeare's tragic play to describe the scheming and ruthlessly homicidal Gloucester, who later becomes the titular Richard III. It is an equally apt metaphor for Walter White's thoroughly malevolent character. And the quote from the play is, Why strewest thou sugar on that bottled spider, whose deadly web ensnareth thee about? So there you go, Josh, a, a little bit of Shakespeare in the Vince Gilligan-led Breaking Bad. It's kind of cool. I have to be honest with you. I, I've I've read a, a little bit of Shakespeare, and I've been, I performed in one Shakespeare show when I was in college. Which one? <sighs> Hold on. You put me on the spot. Uh, I, uh, uh, I got it. Escaping my mind. Let me think about it. Okay. Um, I'm going to remember. Um, but what I'll say about Shakespeare is that I've always had a hard time, like, deciphering Shakespeare is very dense and I've never found it as enjoyable as I think that some people do. And I think partly it's because it's meant to be seen. It's meant to be performed. It's not necessarily just meant to be read. And so sometimes you'll get, you'll just get caught up on some of the language that he uses, but yeah, I, I I would love to say that I know exactly uh, what this means, but it's sort of, you know, I was looking at the, the tarantula at both the beginning and the end of this episode. And I was trying to think about what could it possibly mean. And I just, even with this description, I'm still not entirely sure. I knew there must be a meaning, but I'm still not entirely sure what that is. Even with this description. 
Yeah, that's totally fair. I mean, the description might be just as simple as like drawing a literary parallel for the sort of um, educated, fanatical, obsessive viewer like us. I mean, I'm not educated enough to know this reference, but I'm educated enough to like want, or at least I'm curious enough to want to go like find out what this is about, right? And so maybe it's just as simple as like drawing a parallel between the guy who becomes Richard Third and Walt. Um, but I mean, you're right. Like, I still think that doesn't like tell the entire story of that. Um, so there is something there is something unique going on there more. Maybe there's more to talk about in the next episode, but I thought that was kind of a fun bit of trivia. As far as broader thoughts and themes here, I think there's one really interesting thing, and we'll talk about the Lydia interrogation more, but one of the things I love about that whole scene, and that, that's a long scene, probably about as long as the robbery itself. One of the things I love is Walt has this sidebar, this lengthy sidebar with Lydia, where it's just him and Lydia, and Lydia's asking him, you know, do you have children, et cetera, wouldn't you do anything to protect your children? And Wald acknowledges that, yes, he would. And in a way, like this whole thing is kind of foreshadowing what is about to happen to someone else's child at the end of the, the season in that Walt ends up signing off, I mean, after the fact, but signing off on the killing of this boy, which was done to protect Walt and by extension his children but at the expense of killing someone else's child. And I thought that the whole foreshadowing there was really interesting. And then we have, of course, the whole name of the episode, Dead Freight, the freight being a reference to the train robbery itself, also being a play on uh, you know, a, a reference to Dead Weight, which I think Todd becomes because they agree to pay him off. And this is you know uh, anticipating the next episode, so a spoiler here, but they end up deciding to pay him off while keeping him as far away from the operation as possible. Um, which by definition makes him dead weight, right? And then obviously the sort of uh, macabre uh, connotation, I think is a reference to the boy who gets killed by the end of this. But that's what I have on broader thoughts and themes. How about you, Josh? Yeah, those are really good points. Uh, is now, I, I feel like now, I, I feel like I set this up thinking, you know, sort of saying that the that the train heist was, was this huge moment that I thought was a huge moment, you know, if I were to have revisited it in my mind, and it actually turned out to be smaller. I love this moment. And it's what I chose as my best scene. So I'm sure we'll talk more about it. But yeah, maybe now's a good time to talk a little bit about um, Todd as a character. <clears throat> and one of my nitpicks for this episode, and maybe you can shed some light on this too. But why is it that they decided to involve Todd in this operation like what were skinny Pete and Badger doing were they like previously occupied I mean like at least they are known quantities to all of these people and then you have this guy Todd who Mike did a background check on at some point but they still really don't know much about him like he is heavily involved in this situation and there's another guy who's involved the guy who's car breaks down on the train tracks but we've seen him before we know that he's one of Saul's guys he like helped to um to get help Skyler get the car wash from Bogdan back a couple seasons ago but but Todd is just in a completely unknown quantity so you know they just don't know how he's going to react and so I'm curious as to why they chose him to be to be a part of this huge operation I mean it's like the biggest thing they've done so far yeah, I completely agree. And we find out next episode that like some of the stuff that Mike found in the background check was not altogether favorable too. So it raises even more questions. Like, why did you choose to assume this liability? But I think Todd is someone who's obviously not afraid of skirting the law. So that in this case plays to his favor. Todd does have connections. Some of those connections will not play to their favor, but some of their connections will potentially. I mean, maybe it was because of Todd that they got the heavy equipment they needed to get the tanks in the ground, et cetera. 
And then I think he's just more like, I, I don't know. I mean, he had a pretty tough job with like climbing up on top of the train, opening it up and stuff. And I don't know if skinny or skinny Peter Badger would be up to that. Exactly. You know, and Mike, yeah, maybe not Badger, especially. Yeah. Mike and Walt certainly can't. Right. So, yeah. Uh, so I think it's almost just like, this is the option that they had, but I agree. It was, uh, it was certainly foolish to do that. Um, while we're talking about it, let's just go into the best moment, Josh, because this is uh, what you listed as your best moment right here. No! 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 Yeah, so this is, you know, Todd at the very end of the episode, he's shooting the boy. And I think it's one of those things that's just, uh, the first time you watch it, it's got to be completely shocking. Because we see the boy at the beginning. It's another one of those cold opens to the episode where you're not sure what's going on. You're thinking, I've never seen this boy before. We're out in the desert. I'm not really sure what I'm seeing. It cuts to the the Breaking Bad. You hear a train sequence. in the distance, by the way, when yeah, he's out there. Yeah, you do hear yeah. a train. But you still don't really know what's going on. And I think because so much happens in the episode, you almost, comp- I, I mean, I think the first time I watch this, you completely forget that this boy could even potentially be out there or that it's even the same location. But then, of course, he shows up at the end. And I think this idea that you have a an unknown quantity in Todd who then completely shifts the dynamic of everything they've done just in a single moment. I mean, like we find out later that no one even knew he had a gun with him and Mike confronts him in the next episode. The, the, the next episode buyout is almost like a companion piece to this. We've talked before about how sometimes these episodes work best when you watch them together. And, and this one and the next one are certainly uh, certainly like that. But, you know, like they don't know anything about him and he completely, you know, you see this sort of mild mannered guy. And if you'd seen Jesse Plemons, who plays Todd before, probably his most famous role before this was on Friday Night Lights, where he played a very like well-meaning uh, high school student. Now, he did have a, a pretty sordid plot line on that show as well but that was more of a writer decision than like a care but anyway like he was just like a nice guy and then you see him in this show and it's just like 180 when he when he shoots this boy so i know you picked this as your best moment too zach i don't know if you had anything to add no i mean i i yeah you uh you filled out this sheet before i did and i just couldn't disagree this is this is by far the most striking moment in this episode and it's the moment where you realize, you know, you're, you're sort of riding this high, like this has felt, and we can talk about the best, your best scene selection because it's the heist, right? But you feel like you're watching a heist movie through this episode. And at the end of a good heist movie, just like Oceans, right? Uh, all the good guys get away and they, they get what they came for. And, you know, Walt and Jesse and Mike are certainly not the good guys, but I think in the heist, you're kind of rooting for them, right? Like you want them to pull off this technically complicated, challenging train robbery. And they do. And you're like, wow, this is great. But then this major plot point happens, which just changes everything. And obviously Jesse is right there with us and just realizing this, this changes everything. And we'll see more of that, more of the sort of fallout from that in the next episode. But yeah, you, you cannot top this, this singular moment in this episode, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I guess that's a good segue to my best scene, which is the train heist. And, you know, I say it's my best scene, but it's not necessarily because it's flawless. I think I have most all of my nitpicks from this episode come from the train heist. Well, we can talk more about that at the end. And I already mentioned one about why is Todd even involved? But I just feel like as a whole package, it's just undeniably one of the most exciting things we've seen in the show. And Breaking Bad is not always known as something that's fast paced and exciting, but 
you're right. This idea, like, are they going to pull this? Will they, won't they pull this off thing is what makes it so exciting. And on a rewatch, you know that they're going to pull it off because you've seen it before. But I think on a first watch, it's possible that they get caught or, or something doesn't quite work out. I mean, even maybe they don't even get everything they came for because, you know, they start the train up uh, before they had initially thought. And so maybe they don't get a thousand gallons like they wanted. Maybe they only get half of that or, or three quarters of that. So I just think the whole thing is just an exciting thing. It was a, it's a unique way to sort of, how are they going to get methylamine? They don't know. And then Lydia has this, this answer for them. And I just think it's a fun, fun thing to see this kind of a, like a mini little mini heist movie within this episode, within this bigger show that is not a heist show overall. Yeah, I could not agree with that anymore. I think it was a, a great scene. It's not my best scene, um, mostly because you had already selected it. I mean, I think this is kind of the obvious candidate um, or the best candidate, I should say, maybe not even obvious, but the best candidate for this. There's so much going on in that scene. But I also wanted to call attention to another scene that I think is very good, and this is Walt in Hank's office. Skyler doesn't love me anymore. And I don't know what to do, Hank. I don't. She... She says that I'm a bad influence on the kids. And uh, I'm not... Not good for them. Oh, Jesus. Walt? No. Not. She thinks I'm a bad father. I'm sorry. Hey, I mean, Skyne, you got your issues, but uh, that there, that's, that's... I mean, I'm no... I'm not an expert on parenting or anything, but, uh, but from where I'm sitting, I just, I just don't see it. You know, I, I mean, I... I I, th I think you're great with the kids. So there's so much going on in this scene, and I love it for all of those reasons. So first of all, just to remind listeners who haven't seen it in a while, uh, Walt's in there in Hank's office. Hank, Hank has just re recently been promoted to assistant special agent in charge, the ASAC. And Hank is hosting Walt in his office. So Walt comes in there. Hank doesn't really know what's on the agenda, but... You know, as far as he knows, Walt's just stopping by and Walt starts to have this breakdown. Turns out Walt is really just play acting this whole thing so that he can get Hank out of the office to get him a tissue, coffee, whatever the case is. Hank offers him a coffee and uh, and plant a bug in a picture frame and and, uh, you know, put on some sort of uh, like Internet sniffing device to help him figure out what what kind of uh, a traffic is going to and from his computer. And I love this because it, first of all, like you just get a great acting performance between the two of them. And you have like Hank, the macho man, who's like not sure how to comfort Walt and just clearly feels very uncomfortable, but also wants to take the opportunity to help his brother-in-law. And it's, it's a very kind of like endearing um, scene for Hank. You also have Walt. And when the episode starts, you don't know what he's doing, right? And so you're like, is he, is he being genuine here? And... Walter's acting. I'm not saying Brian Cranston because you know Brian Cranston is playing Walt, who then has to have this acting performance to convince Hank. So Walt's acting is very convincing, so much so that for the viewer, you're like, "Is is he? Is this real?" And no, it's not real. It's all completely a ruse. But it's um, I think third. This is the third thing I like. It's a testament to how far 
Walt has fallen. I mean, now he's like playing this ruse on his brother-in-law while throwing his wife under the bus, right? Scott doesn't love anymore. She's love me anymore. She says I'm a terrible father, a danger to the kids, et cetera, et cetera. Um, also that he can plant this stuff, which is highly illegal and certainly a felony uh, on a federal agent to uh, to monitor his him electronically and acoustically. So uh, there's a lot going on in the scene and I, I absolutely love every part of it. What's a small felony like planting a bug when you're cooking meth, you know? For, for Walt, it's like, eh, it's just a drop in the bucket. Added to the list, you know, yeah. I, I have to say, I, I totally see what you're saying about Walt acting here. I do think, though, that unlike some of his previous acting moments, I do think there is some truth to what he's saying, because I really do think that for the past couple of episodes, maybe for this entire season, Walt has been struggling with the fact that the thing that he started all of this for, his family, has completely fallen away from him. And, you know, this will get addressed more in the next episode. But, you know, I, I really do think he is, and it maybe not broken up to the point where he's going to cry about it, but I do think that it's something that weighs on him. And so I think that, yes, he's acting to Hank in order to do X, Y, and Z, plant the bug, plant the internet, whatever he's planting on the computer. But I do think there is some truth to what he's saying. And we've talked before about one of Walt's tells is how much he talks when he's lying. And he is talking some, but he's not just going on and on and on and on and on. He, he's being thoughtful about what he's saying. And so I think there is some level of sincerity to what he's saying. Now, obviously, he is working towards a larger goal here for himself and his new crew. But I do think that he's being somewhat genuine. I would agree with you if it were not for the fact that we just came through Pool Party and Pool Party ends with that really adversarial conversation between him and Skylar. So I think if we were watching this even just two episodes ago or the order of the two was mixed, uh, I might agree with you that this is, you know, at least partially genuine, that it's, you know, some sort of mixture of acting and genuine emotion. But I think we're past that point for Walt. I think that that this is... Uh, you know, this is full Heisenberg at this point. And as soon as Hank leaves, he kicks right into action. You know, he doesn't have a problem collecting himself to plant the bug. He goes right for it and and does it right away and is able to sort of slip right back into his emotional state as soon as Hank Hank comes back. So, yeah, I hear you. I mean, I think this in some ways is like the central question, right? Um, or one of the central questions, right? In addition to the one that we posed at the very beginning of this podcast series, like, um, is Walt a bad guy who becomes worse or is he a good guy who, you know, through ha sort of happenstance in a series of unfortunate events uh, becomes bad? And I think in this in this case, it's like how far how far gone is he at this point, right? Like how complete is the transformation? And I don't know if there is an answer at all um, because I think it can be interpreted in both ways, but I think it's it's interesting. Definitely so. All right, so we got best scene, we've done, we've done best moment, and then we're at best writing. Um I'll let you talk about your best writing, which is this conversation between Walt and Skyler. Our children are not in danger. Just a couple of days ago, you told me that a man held a gun to your head. You said it like it was a point of pride. There's nothing you can say that'll convince me there won't come a day that somebody will knock on that door looking to harm you or me or all of us. And when that day comes, the children cannot be here. You agree to that? 
and I will be whatever kind of partner you want me to be. What I like about this this scene, especially the writing, is I I've really started to love the Walt and Skyler interactions in the season, especially. I think before, I'd say before season f- four, maybe all the Walt and Skyler. I mean, with the exception of a few, were sort of throwaways for me. I always felt like she, we've talked about this before, how the character of Skylar never really matched up to Walt. But what I like about this version of Skylar or the the character she's been forced to become based on all of her circumstances is that she is going toe-to-toe with Walt. And I like this scene because it just, for, and I like this writing, because it just shows in not so many words, just how acrimonious this relationship has become. And, you know, earlier in this, this, this scene, Walt says, you know, you'll, you'll get over it because you're my wife. And she says, no, I'm your hostage. And as long as you have me like pretty much like trapped or in prison as your hostage, uh, you know, I don't really have a choice, but our children aren't going to be involved. And I just feel like just watch the other thing that I like about this too is that they don't give Walt a lot to respond with here. It, unlike the scene where they're, you know, fighting back and forth that we talked about a couple episodes ago, this is a moment where a lot of Walt's reaction is just facial reaction. He doesn't have a lot of words to say. And I think that he just isn't sure how to respond to this because while the relationship with Skylar maybe beyond repair, I really do feel like he doesn't want to lose his children. And that's something that's really important to him. And the fact that she's able to keep them from him is harming him in a way that he didn't expect to be possible. Yeah. And I think it, it offends him too, on a personal level, personal level, because this is someone who clearly prides control and he feels like he's being shortchanged and something that he has a rightful, um, you know, ownership to, or, or right to, is being taken away from him uh, unjustly in his view. And so I, t- I totally agree with your inter- interpretation of that. And I think that you're right. And over the past like four episodes, we've gotten some really good Skylar Walt back and forth. It's been a strong point of the season for sure. I just also love that she's just like sitting there smoking a cigarette. She's just like not a care in the world. Like, look, I might be your hostage, but I'm going to do whatever I want. And there's nothing you can really do to stop me because yeah. if you don't have me, that money that you're making is going nowhere because I'm the one who's laundering it. I'm the one who knows all of that. Yeah. That's crazy, man. Um, well, my best writing is Lydia's interrogation and it's for a variety of reasons. One of them though, is just this little exchange right here. Bottom line. I have done this long enough to know that there are two kinds of heist. Those where the guys get away with it. And those that leave witnesses. Give me a break. You guys were going to murder me. I thought you were professionals. So that's a humorous line there. It's hard to, t- to tell exactly without the context, but Lydia's like, you guys were just about to murder me because you suspected me of, of planting a bug. But now you're demurring at the possibility of killing these dudes who will witness your heist. I thought you were pros. Like, why is this a big deal to you? And she's the one who, of course, hired the hitmen to kill Mike and all his crew and stuff. So there's like some comedic elements there. There's the exchange between Lydia and Walt that I already talked about in the very beginning where they the two of them just have a sidebar about you know what a parent is willing to do for their children um there's Mike delivering his like deadpan comments and what we just heard there like at the end there's two kinds of heists you know uh and then there's like there's little little um 
details of the writing too that I think the writers are able to use this scene to show various parts of personalities. You know, Jesse's the one who's saying like, oh, I don't know, she seems like she's telling the truth. I, I believe her. I don't, I don't think we should kill her, et cetera. And he gets outvoted by Walt and Mike, right? So the, I, I just think there's so much going on in this episode. Uh, it's so multifaceted and it has the, uh, it has this sort of, I think, distinctive um, characteristic of being able to show a certain facet of every character sort of equally, um, which is, is is a rare feat, I think, for the writer's room to be able to pull off. So I really like this. I will also say um, that it, it, this is the source of one of my nitpicks here because Lydia comes up with a solution for their methylamine problem and the solution is rob this train. And then she tells them like every possible detail about this train. Like she's, you know, was a conductor in her previous life, like exactly how it works. <laughs> and now she's the logistics person for Madrigal. So it's, it's understandable that she would have like the train schedules and stuff, but she knows every possible thing about it and somehow has access to like the train manifest itself. So she knows exactly which car the methylamine is on, et cetera. And, uh, and to me, that is just, that is very unrealistic. Um, the source of one of my nitpicks as well, which, which follows on yours, which is, when they go to actually pull off the heist, they have every single possible little tool that they need to do it, yes. which means that Lydia not only knows which which car the methylamine is on, she knows the construction of that car. So you need this sort of, you know, wrench at the top and you need this wrench at the bottom. You need right. this specific tie that says security, you know, whatever that you have to cut away. And it's like, OK, there's it's a little far fetched that they would know exactly everything they would need here. Yeah, I completely agree with you. So uh, so that's one of my main nits. I've got a couple of other little ones here too. So um, one is that the person who figured out how to rob the train um, effectively, silently, was Jesse. And it's a pretty ingenious plan, right? Like substitute water for methylamine, et cetera. Uh, but I don't know how it's Jesse that figured that out. Um, another one is they stopped maybe, the train. Maybe he was like, maybe he was like, yo, water bitch yeah maybe <laughs> and Walt was like hmm okay 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 and Walt this thing it reminds me of uh when uh Walt was doing the little chemistry tutorial when they were building a battery and oh he's yeah. like what element <laughs> and Jesse's like uh wire oh <laughs> um, uh, so good yeah so just the fact that Jesse was the one to figure that out, I was like really I don't know about that and then um two things with the dump truck one that's a heck of a way to try to stop a train, just parking a dump truck on the track. And that train gets really close to hitting the dump truck. So what was their plan if the train hit the dump truck? That would make things much more complicated. Second, did those guys really think they were going to be able to move the dump truck? <laughs> they like, get behind it. They're like, all right, everyone push. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, okay. Those are my those are my nits to pick. I have, another, I have one more nitpick with the train heist, which is the train stops... And they immediately like rush into action. And the first thing they do is they dig up where they'd put these big tanks, these big barrels under the ground, which they'd previously buried there. They dig those up and they pull the tops off. But into the empty one that is going to have their precious methylamine, I, I noticed a not, insig a not insignificant amount of dirt that just falls into the bucket. Now, is this going to be a problem when they like start cooking meth and there's like desert dirt in in the methylamine? Like, I feel like part of it is that they need this very important ingredient to be pure. Now, of course, you and I have no direct meth cooking experience, so 
it's, it's hard to say, but I feel like you don't want your blue meth with specks of dirt in it. Yeah, I completely agree. That's a good point. I also actually have one more nit to pick that might actually be more of a blooper. And uh, it turns out I'm not the only person to think about this, but um, they put the they put the water into the tank at the same time they're taking the methylamine out, right? Yeah, I bought this too. Walt points out that aqueous, what is it? I think it says aqueous methylamine weighs less than water, so they need to actually put in less water to replace yes. the methylamine. But here's nine the thing. Nine-tenths of water to, yeah. Right, so 900 gallons of water approximately for the 1,000 gallons of methylamine they're taking out. But here's the thing. If water weighs more and you put the water in at the top and you take the methylamine out from the bottom, won't you have a diluted product by the time, you know, by the time you've pumped in 800 gallons of water into that? Yeah, so I think they start about halfway through, like maybe maybe not even halfway through. So I think they've they've pumped out 300 pure right. gallons of methylamine and then they start pumping in the water. So that's a good point. Yeah, they now, would mostly now, be sucking out. I mean, I'm, you know, Walt's a smart guy. He probably is steps ahead of me on this. Maybe he was like, he ran the numbers and figured out that in a tank that big, you know, before the water sunk to the bottom, they'd be able to get out the methylamine they need, et cetera. I mean, but it just struck me as like, oh, that's interesting. You know, the fact that they do it simultaneously seems to me that you'd have potentially some dilution but yeah yeah i'm not a chemist josh so <laughs> all right either. well that's all i've got in this episode do you have anything else before we do the mvp tally no that's everything i have or the mvp vote rather um all right so who is your mvp for this episode josh i'm giving it to someone new i'm giving it to todd and okay. the reason i'm giving it to todd is because i think that even though he's not in most of the episode i mean it's, he's not in he's maybe not even in half of it he has the most consequential moment in the episode, certainly at the end, which will pay dividends for all of these characters as we move forward. And I think he then becomes an integral part of of this season and the rest of the show, much to the detriment of, unfortunately, some of the characters, which we'll learn later on. I won't get into any more of that now, but I also think that he asks, he he provides an opportunity for Walt and Jesse to sort of take pause when he starts asking a lot of questions and I think that they are riding their high of like, we have this perfect plan laid out here. Like when they're in the desert, filling up the water tank initially, Walter and uh, I'm sounding like Mike now, Walter and, and Jesse are sort of going back and forth, like with this smug look on their face, like, well, Jesse's the one who figured this out. Oh, Mr. White, thank you. You know, I'll, I'll take it from here. And it's like, if they just taken a moment to pause and, and realize that they've got this unknown quantity, as I talked about before, on their hands here, they might have prevented some of the the, the headache that they're going to have moving forward. So Todd plays a really important part in this episode, so I'm giving my MVP vote to him. How about you? Uh, I love it. Uh, I think it's really good. I, um, I thought about that, and the only reason I didn't is because his most pivotal moment comes at the very, very end, but by the time most of the episode's done, but still a totally defensible choice because as we've talked about the uh, that moment is just like so it's such a crucial moment it's the moment for this episode but i'm going to go with walt here which is not a very original choice but i think in in um, you know every single scene uh he he just uh, his character comes through very strongly drives every scene forward and i think uh i think he's a safe safe and safe yet uninspired choice for the mvp for dead freight I'm surprised you didn't go with Walt Jr. there for his pivotal scene in the bedroom. You know, thought about it. Thought about I'm it. I'm not it's leaving. <laughs> I'm not leaving. And Walt's like, yes, you're leaving. And then 10 seconds later, he's leaving. Yeah. <laughs>
Like, okay. Well, well, way to make a stand there, Walt Jr. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, man. Well, that's it for Dead Freight. For me, for our listeners, if we missed anything or you want to weigh in on what we missed, send us a note, breakingpod at vernacularpodcast.com. And until next time, I'm Zach. And I'm Josh. Have a great week. <laughs>